Welcome to the Art of Conversation. I am Jay LaRock, and our podcast features entertaining and informative discussions with interesting people from around the world. My background is in video games, and working with Obsolete Gamer, I had the privilege to interview and talk with so many different people, not just on the subject of gaming, but various subjects about writing books, music, just the art and overall encompassing world of gamers. And I've always wanted to expand on that because there's so many things that I'm interested in and there's so many things that I've learned just by talking to people. Sadly, today with social media, a lot of things are broken down to just a few sentences, if barely that. And there's not as much discussion going on as you think. It's more people yelling at each other or just waiting for their opportunity to speak. So what I wanted to do with this podcast is to reach out to people who have dedicated their lives to different topics, who have just the education and knowledge and they're willing to share it with people like me and people like you who just want to listen and hopefully learn something, experience something new. And for our first episode, there's no one that I can think of that has taught me more about a subject that's really important than Sarah Bramlett. Sarah is a healthcare and obesity advocate and as someone that has helped countless people navigate the twisting and frankly frustrating nature of the healthcare system, as well as helping people deal with obesity. I began with asking Sarah to define herself, because far too often, people who deal with weight issues are often defined by people on the outside who have no idea about what is on the inside. And that's a very good question, because I've actually had a situation where someone was uh, writing an article and had asked me, you know, interviewed me for part of the article, and I had read it, and they had... Um, stated that I was a uh, fat activist, and I said, no, I'm not a fat activist. I am an obesity advocate, and they kind of were puzzled by it. So it kind of brings me to the point of, first of all, I consider myself a patient advocate, and more specifically for patients that have lymphedema and patients that have obesity. Um, And one of the key things is advocate versus activist. And I have a very good friend who is in one of the organizations with me who describes easily the differences. An activist is willing to get arrested. And I will tell you, I'm not willing to get arrested for my causes as much as I strongly believe in them. Um, I would not do well in jail. Uh, And as my mother often jokes, we don't have bail money. So I am an advocate. Uh, And, you know, I usually say patient advocate, and that word has kind of been confused because healthcare organizations and hospitals now have positions called patient advocates, which um, are supposed to be, you know, helping the patients, which I'm sure that is, you know, what most of them do. They help the patient. Um, They help maybe guide the patient through finding different services and such. Um, but, of course, if they're hired by a hospital or healthcare organization, they are most likely there for the um, purpose of the hospital or organization, their employer, versus really for the patient, which I still think is a smart move because um, as a patient advocate. That is another thing with my advocacy. I want to work with people to make changes and improvements, not just against what I don't think is going well or is being done right. Um, And that's, so back to the person who thought I was a, wanted to call me a fat activist. And I said, no, I'm an obesity advocate. They took it as like, I'm pro obesity. And they were very confused. And I said, I am pro-patients with obesity having the same rights as other patients and the same access to health care. That's what my advocacy, the key of my advocacy is about, is patients having access to health care. And my experience as a patient with lymphedema and obesity, and there's actually a third, I should probably speak about it more because I know my friends with lymphedema are going to say, why didn't you mention lymphedema? Um, so... My experience as a patient with these conditions and being 
ignored by healthcare providers, being misdiagnosed, being, you know, shamed for my weight, um, being called a liar when treatments weren't working, not having, like, when I finally got treatment, then not having it covered by insurance, and to this day, still fighting for that. That's what led me here. I mean, that's what shaped the past 25 years of my life, maybe. Wow. That's interesting to say. Um, but yeah, so I am a patient advocate. That's what I am. And I'm a talker. <laughs> well, for people that don't know the differences between uh, lipedema, could you just give people like a, a breakdown of the differences so they could better understand? Certainly. So the first condition I actually have is lipedema, which is the abnormal accumulation of fat. Um, and it's mostly below the waist. So if you see people, it's about 11% of women have it. Um, it's rare, but men do have it. It's just even more rare among men. Uh, but abnormal amount of fat below the waist, so like hips and thighs, and it can extend down to the lower legs, and it can affect the upper arms. Um, so this was a condition I was born with. So um, my body just produces this excess tissue for no known reason. And the excess tissue, unlike the fat of what someone with obesity might have, the fat doesn't respond to diet and exercise in order to reduce it. And so that's why I was called a liar most of my life because I would do things that most people could do to lose weight and it wouldn't work for me and so a doctor would just assume I wasn't doing it and I was just lying about it um, so and it's just frustrating when you know what you're doing or you know what you're trying or you know what you're not doing um, and you know people just don't believe you and no one thought to actually maybe believe you and look at for some other reason like one time my mother told me now that a doctor said you know Sarah's gained 40 pounds since her last visit and no one thought to maybe look into more reasons why. But the, also the problem is there was nothing to look into because there was no, there's no actual, like, diagnostic test to, to diagnose the condition. It's more just by looking. And so in my situation, I also have lymphedema, which is the abnormal accumulation of lymph fluid. Now, it's most commonly called... Um, when people have cancer and they've had lymph nodes removed after cancer or radiated after cancer, people with cancer, you know, get lymphedema in their, the area which they had cancer, many breast cancer patients get it in their arms. Me, because the lymphedema has crushed my lymphatic system, it's triggered lymphedema. And so, and that was actually the first condition I was uh, diagnosed with because it was more obvious at the time. And now this whole time, I've probably also had obesity. I don't have metabolic obesity. And so maybe people would say, like, sometimes I do say I'm just fat. I don't have obesity. But the reason I'm still in that realm of obesity advocacy is because so many patients with lipedema and lymphedema are told they have obesity and are prescribed obesity treatments that don't work. And then, like I said, then you're you're... you're you know, you're considered a failure. You're told you're a failure, you know. And so that's why, and and also in the lymphedema world, you're told to maintain a more normal weight, but there's a lot of misconceptions about how to do that and the treatment of obesity in the lymphedema world. So my advocacy has always tried to be, be involved in both advocacy for both conditions and try to bridge the information and try to help providers and patients in both communities understand the others to get the best help and it's just interesting because I have to fight that the fight for health care and access to care is so similar in both of the communities with lack of coverage for certain treatments or lack of coverage for the basic treatments that are needed and a lot of it still goes to uh, misinformation about conditions and also um, stigma and weight stigma uh, that exist in healthcare and in society. It must be really frustrating, also, because you you would think that when you go to your doctor, um, they'd be able to understand these kind of things. It's not going to be something where you come in and you've had either this weight gain or you have 
visible things that's different from the last time you saw your doctor. And instead of your doctor saying, hmm, this is strange, they immediately go to, uh, well, you must be eating too much or you're not exercising. I mean, how do you get to the point for people out there who's talking to their, their doctors to not just call everything fat? Because, I mean, we've seen that all over the place where everything is just, oh, you need to lose weight. And sometimes you find out later that there's all these other issues, but the doctor, all they saw is weight and they discarded it. How do you teach a doctor when that's supposed to be the person that you trust and trust and look forward to for information? Exactly. It is frustrating. And, you know, I think probably the most common thing you hear when someone comes and says, oh, I just went to the doctor and I had a bad experience. Like usually the first thing like you might hear from someone is like, you just need to find a new doctor, which is, first of all, not the easiest thing to do. Um, some doctors aren't accepting new patients. Um, it depends on what doctor's available for your insurance. And it can be traumatizing or upsetting to have to have these same experiences over and over again until you find a doctor who is open their eyes and open their minds to other possibilities. Um, now, there are several organizations, um, you know, one of which I'm involved in, the Obesity Action Coalition, that has, uh, you know, provider locators that will help you locate providers of different types in your area uh, that have been trained. Obesity Medicine um, Society has, you know, certificates for patients to be, you know, accepted in obesity medicine. Uh, that, though, comes into the realm of there are patients out there. As I mentioned, obesity, by definition, should be more than just a BMI. Obesity, by definition, is a disease based on other metabolic issues. So there are people and very active people who we share the same thought of, you know, health shouldn't be determined by weight alone. And so, uh, you know, them to think that they, they don't even like the word obesity, which I can understand. It is a word I use and it is a word I think should be used, but I'm not going to tell someone that they have to use it if they're not comfortable with it because I think we've all had such a shared experience or similar experience, but we've all had our own personal experience growing up with excess weight and how we've been treated. And I know not everyone's has been like mine. And I know, you know, and that's what shaped my thought on the, you know, the word use and everything. But regardless of if what people like the word to use, I want doctors to treat every patient of, I want doctors to really treat patients of any size, of every size, you know, look at the condition and listen to the patients and learn more about the conditions. And so part of what my advocacy is, is to try to educate health care professionals. And so what I find is medic, you know, medical professionals will often listen to other medical professionals. And so when we try to, you know, have uh, professional organizations who speak about patient experiences and speak about obesity during their, you know, national conferences, and they do also now bring patients in. You know, they talk about wanting patient-centered care, but then they don't really ever want to listen to the patients, you know, and really listen to what patients say works or what doesn't work and so that is like slowly how we make changes so patients can also stand up for themselves and I know most people advocate and say you know if a doctor tries to say something about your weight why not you know push back and again it, it really depends the power system and you know it, we, we should feel empowered to speak to our doctors honestly about what's going on. But I think most people feel like the doctors are more powerful than them. And I know some doctors feel that way too. So they might not feel comfortable speaking up to them. But I know I had a doctor one time say, oh, this breathing issue, I didn't, I, I knew what your breathing issue was before I even saw you. It's your weight. And I said, excuse me, I used to weigh almost 200 pounds more than what I currently do, and I didn't have this breathing issue. So how about we look for some other possible issue? Now, it turned out that he didn't, but then and then I didn't go back to that doctor. Um, thankfully, I have a very good primary care doctor who takes good care of me. But, yes, I have had situations where I just won't go back to a doctor. Um, I will try to see another one. And, again, though that's not possible for everyone, 
and that's not the answer. We need to also try to educate all providers, try to get medical schools to make sure they're teaching more about the weight bias and the implicit bias and that exists among providers. And, you know, sometimes it's backed up with studies. You know, there's been studies recently that say shaming patients doesn't help, you know, and more information, like they're finally actually studying obesity. They're finally studying lipedema. They're finally studying lymphedema. There's actually working on getting a diagnostic tool for lipedema, which will help tremendously because as much as it's a condition you can look at and if a doctor knows how to like really feel the tissue and feel for the differences that the lipedema tissue feels different than regular tissue, then they can diagnose you. But most doctors want a blood test or some type of scan or some type of diagnostic test to prove you have this condition. Otherwise, we've had patients told that lipedema is just a made-up Internet condition to excuse your fat. And it's just like when you're up against something like that, it's very difficult. Um, And that's the hardest thing I think that a lot of people don't understand is that um, you're dealing with so many fronts. And anyone who has been overweight and especially goes out or puts themselves out there even on social media sees how bad it can be. It seems like almost every other group uh, is protected where you can't say things about them. But as far as weight, that's still fine. It's still fine to attack someone uh, weight, especially women. And then you're dealing with that in your life. You may have parents or something who don't understand. So they're telling you things. Your friends may be telling you things. And then you go to your doctor to get some help. And sometimes these doctors, they don't really want to help you either. Uh, I've been to some doctors uh, myself since I'm overweight as well who have just told me, oh, just don't eat this or, or, or just gave me whatever flavor of the month uh, weight loss plan it was. No blood tests, no exams, nothing. It's just like, oh, don't drink this, don't drink that. They never even asked me uh, you know, what I drink or eat. Mm-hmm. So how does someone find that courage or knowledge to go there when Everywhere they turn, someone's yelling at them and putting them down, and then they go somewhere where they think they're safe and find out they're not. Well, I admit, the we have, I think, so a positive of social media, as much as there's bad, I was going to share, I'm going to also share the bad side of social media. And some of the groups and, you know, some of the um, Facebook groups and things, it's, and or if you look for someone in your area, so the word of mouth and getting that first-hand experience of, hey, anyone know of a, a doctor who's weight-friendly or anyone know of a doctor who knows about lipedema who I can go to to get diagnosed with, that really helps. I mean, the problem is, depending on where a patient is located, there might not be a lot of doctors. But that, you know, first-hand word of mouth, you know, to, to you know, information about doctors is very helpful. But again, is the doctor going to be in your network? You know, and things like that. And, I mean, and this type of information, you know, it's actually sad because as much as it it is a problem for patients um, with excess weight and obesity, it also extends to patients with other conditions. LBGQ patients, um, you know, transgender patients find it difficult to find healthcare providers who are accepting of, you know, their care needs. And... I think that's so frustrating because healthcare is such a basis of our existence. I mean, if we're not healthy or, you know, as healthy as we could possibly be, um, and, and health means physical, emotional, and mental, you know, being having some level of health depends on how you are able to participate in society, you know, your education, your employment, uh, even, you know, your social life. I mean, I'm not saying you have to be perfectly healthy to have all those, but if you think about it, if you're not feeling well, you know, it's hard to keep a job. Like, I only work part-time because of my medical conditions. Um, you know, going to school and growing up, gosh, the the mental – when I think back of how I planned, not just – like, I walked to school, but then figuring out my plan of how to get up the three flights of steps to my first period class, um, which desks to sit in and having to get to class early to get a certain desk. Or would the teacher allow me to switch desk? I mean, it was always like figuring out a plan to get up steps in a certain amount of time and also getting to the room in time to get the desk I needed to possibly sit in. 
Um, and I mean, I had friends in my small town who just dropped out of school because of similar issues. And that's, that doesn't even, that's you just being able to sit in class. That doesn't even attempt to start with then interacting with others in your class. Um, but, you know, that actually, thinking of a story about that, actually, once I want to tie that into the Facebook thing I was going to mention. So in school, you know, like, I was kind of, I'm the youngest of five. My siblings, of course, teased me about my weight and stuff, which I really think kind of prepared me for society quite well. So, like, we were on a class trip, and we were, like, crossing the street, and I said something like, stick with me, guys, because, you know, no car is going to want to hit me. And the teachers were like, so, oh, my gosh, Sarah, don't don't say that about yourself, and da-da-da-da-da. But do you think those same teachers ever scolded anyone else for making fun of me? No. Like, do you think those teachers didn't treat me different any other way? Like, I wasn't allowed to make a comment about my weight lightheartedly, yet they didn't do anything to stop anyone else about making saying something nor did their perception of me get you know did they change their perception of me you know based off of it um so let's bring that back to talking about being on social media so a few years ago actually i think it's going to be six years this month um, i was on a very short segment of the doctor's television show and uh there was a clip an image you know a still photo from the show uh, that I wanted to use on my Facebook blog page to promote the fact that I had been on the show. And it was like a picture and my arms were kind of, I don't know, I wasn't like, I think my arms were like kind of clasped in front of me. And I went to, I could share it on Facebook, on my page. But when I tried to make it a sponsored post, Facebook told me that the abnormal body part or whatever you know it went against their sponsored post policy and they wouldn't let me make put the post out because of the image however that same picture was taken by some trolls on the internet and doctored up make me look like Popeye and make fun of the size of my arms and yet when it would be reported to Facebook they said it didn't violate their community standards and wouldn't pull it so I can't use the original image to promote my advocacy work for the medical conditions that cause my arms to look the way they do. But Internet trolls and bullies can use a doctored image to make fun of me and my medical condition. So, I mean, that's, that's what we're dealing with, you know? And what's and, really um, strange about it is, like, when you see that the attacks can actually can't come um, from people that's supposed to be trying to help as well, because you have, of course, the trolls. Um, and I've seen where people attack you for being happy or doing things as if you should be hiding out in the house and never showing yourself. Or if you go out, you have to be afraid. But when you show that you're strong or that you're happy or that you can actually enjoy life, they have a problem with that, which I think is telling about the trolls. But then on the other side, which you spoke to earlier, sometimes people who are trying to advocate for people who are overweight will attack you because you also talk about getting healthy, you know, improving yourself. And it almost seems as if some people take it a little too far as if you should not want to improve yourself because you're somehow putting down other people who are struggling with being overweight. Exactly. To me, it's a healthcare issue, and everyone has their right to their own decisions about healthcare. So I don't think everyone, I don't think anyone should be told they need to lose weight or they have to lose weight. I don't think it should be forced upon them. I absolutely, as much as I have had weight loss, or should be, it was weight loss surgery at the time. It, it's more correctly is bariatric surgery. I have had it. I'm an advocate for people who want to have it to have access to insurance coverage for and to have the best education about it. That's what I think people should have the right to have research evidence-based information about treatment options so they can make their own decisions. I do not like to find out that ele electronic medical records will flag any patient with a certain BMI and tell the doctor that they need to give them a uh, referral or make a recommendation for bariatric surgery based solely on a BMI. That is ridiculous. And yes, I don't think enough. This is this is the this is the hard part. There's so many of patients who get 
told just have surgery who don't want it or perhaps it's not ideal for their current situation. And then there's so many patients who could benefit from it who have doctors who tell them it's the easy way out and they shouldn't want want it. It, it It's just, it makes me angry because there's such that disconnect and imbalance because, and it, again, it just comes to education. But when people hear, yes, so I, I think you can be healthy at any size. And again, I think health is physical, mental, and emotional. Uh, and I think... You know, it's up to that person to decide what is their healthiest. Now, of course, there obviously are markers in healthcare, such like blood pressure and um, blood sugar and things that are, you know, can be deemed, you know, hey, if your blood sugar is certain high and you're pre-diabetic or you're diabetic, you need that treated. And you might be able, there's some patients who can lose weight and treat it, and there's some patients who lose weight and it still need medication. Um, so I don't think the Weight is everything. I think I, some people, if you say, hey, you're diabetic and you need to make some changes in your diet for the diabetes, and those changes in diet also result in weight loss, okay. Uh, I have seen people who have been in that situation, and they're scared that if they start to lose weight, they're going to lose their community of friends who are in the, like, body positive or fat activists or whatever. I don't even, I, I know each like movement has some own, their own terminology too. So I, you know, I don't want to, but it, it's interesting to think people, if they follow guidance for a health condition would lose support they have. This is my analogy. I have a condition like, whereas some of my like blood pressure stuff might be normal. It is not healthy for me to carry around all this additional epidemic tissue. It's hard on my body to carry it around. It's hard for me to move around because of it. So, yes, I want to lose weight. I will not ever say I do not want to lose weight. I want to lose weight. I am not willing to – I've tried things. I've had bariatric surgery. I've tried some medications. I've tried things throughout my life. Some have worked, and then the weight comes back because I have a progressive condition. So, you know – I, I really, like right now, liposuction is, there's more being researched about it and it's being more available for treatment of lipedema. But my personal experience in healthcare, I'm not sure if I'm willing to take the risk that would be involved for me personally for liposuction when I can't be guaranteed the tissue is actually going to stay away. Now, hey, maybe I could have some surgeries and it gives me another five or ten years of better mobility than I have now. It's something to consider. But, again, that's a personal choice for me. But I'm going to say I want to lose weight for my own personal health, and I should have access to that. I should be able to make my own health care decisions. I shouldn't be shamed for any decisions I make or any decisions I don't want to make. And the same as, you know, I had a bachelor's degree. I decided I want a bachelor's degree in another topic. I actually got a bachelor's degree in healthcare administration. And then I got a master's degree in health law. I didn't continue my education because I thought I wasn't smart or uneducated. I continued my education because I wanted to better myself. So that's why I say I don't want to lose weight because I don't think I'm not good as I currently am. I'm great. I just want to be better. And as the years go by and things get more difficult, it just takes more effort or different treatments to make myself better. I mean, just like with education, as I, like, was working jobs or trying to work jobs, I realized if I wanted certain statuses or certain advancements or certain promotions, I need to increase my education level. Now, of course, as you know and other people know, that kind of turned out to be a bust, but um, they will never take that degree away from me, and I'm actually using that degree in my advocacy work. Um, I actually have a degree in English and the degrees in healthcare, and now I do advocacy work where I, you know, share my story and written version and speaking versions, and I do kind of just see, like, everything coming together and pulling skills from all my life experience up to this point, you know, to do what I'm currently doing. And it's not just uh, regular, everyday people that you're trying to educate on your condition and just on weight bias in general. Can you tell us a little bit about the bill that you and others are working on to get passed. 
certainly. And that is a great, you know, when I was saying what I'm currently doing. So what am I currently doing? Um, I am currently trying to get a bill passed through Congress that would mandate coverage for lymphedema compression garments and supplies. Uh, The bill is the Lymphedema Treatment Act. Uh, It's part of a group that I'm the board chair of, the Lymphedema Advocacy Group, which is a completely volunteer grassroots organization um, that has is now behind the most supported health care bill in Congress for the second session in a row. We have over 400 co-sponsors. And for anyone who might not realize, there's only approximately 535 members of Congress, 435 House members of the House of Representatives and 100 senators. And we currently have... 380, maybe a few over 380, we've gotten more co-sponsors, 380 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives, and we have 71 co-sponsors in the Senate. We have supermajority of Congress in both chambers that support our bill, Uh, and yet this is the second session that we're waiting to get it passed. It did pass in December. It was part of H.R. 3 that did pass the House of Representatives, so we're currently waiting for some action in the Senate, but as with everything else in life, this corona, COVID-19, really took 2020 off the expected path. Um, So we are still working. I'm still proud of the work we've done. I've been a part of the organization for six years, and I've been on the board just a little under six years. Um, And it's actually been a bill that has been in Congress going on I think it'll be 10 years next year. Uh, So we have done everything we need to do. Our biggest challenge was educating people what lymphedema was and why the bill was needed, Um, which the reason the bill is needed is because compression is the key cornerstone of lymphedema treatment. And it's not covered by Medicare simply because it's not disposable and it doesn't last as long as what durable medical equipment should work last. So there's not what they call a payment category for it. So it's not that they don't think it's medically necessary. It's not that they don't think it is adequate treatment for the condition. It's just kind of like a paperwork administrative thing is there's not not a code to pay it under, so we can't pay for it. And it takes an act of Congress to create that benefit category. So, uh, so on top of all the frustration you have in going to see doctors, once you do finally see a doctor and you do finally find out what's wrong with you and you finally find out, oh, my gosh, there's something that can help me. And in, in our situation, it's something that can help me that's relatively simple. You know, it's not a huge, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, not an invasive procedure or anything. It's compression. And then you find out you need to wear it every day for the rest of your life. You need to replace it every six months. Oh, and by the way, it's not covered by your insurance. And it's not, it's not, how do I say it? It's not expensive compared to like a surgery or a medication, which there aren't any medications for lymphedema. But in like my situation where due to the size and shape of my legs, I need a custom fitted pair. And because I'm limited in my ability to work because of lymphedema, it is an added expense that I can't afford as often as I should be replacing my compression. But it goes beyond that because no one questions the coverage of an antibiotic that is $30, but with insurance you can get it for $380. So the, the cost should never be how expensive or how inexpensive something is shouldn't determine if it gets covered. The fact is it's medically necessary for a medical condition and it should be covered, period. Because sometimes... That coverage is what a patient might determine if it's really something they need. So remember, I said lymphedema is most commonly, um, uh, secondary lymphedema especially, is common among cancer patients. So uh, almost 40% of breast cancer patients will develop lymphedema after they get treatment. And I have heard lymphedema, it's it's not like overnight your arm is huge. It can, can come on slowly. And I've actually heard patients, you know, be told you should probably get a sleeve to wear, especially when you travel or, you know, because um, the elevation of an airplane can make you know, the limb swell more. So I've heard patients be advised they should, they probably have early stage lymphedema and they should probably get a sleeve. 
once they find out like insurance doesn't cover it, they might think, oh no, well I really don't need one. But here's another, and I forget what kind of category this kind of fell under. I think when we talk about um, how the weight bias that goes along with some of this lack of coverage. So there's a lot, like no one would blame. So if someone had cancer and they had radiation, they had surgery and the cancer recurred, no one would say like you didn't try hard enough to treat your cancer. You would just say, oh, that treatment didn't work. Whereas with weight and obesity and losing weight, if you don't lose as expected or if you regain, you're told, oh, you must, you know, must have done something wrong, you know? And so a similar issue is so patients with lymphedema from cancer, especially breast cancer, there's a law that Congress passed, the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act, that mandates coverage for anything related to mastectomies and the results of mastectomies and breast cancer. So a woman right now who's on regular insurance, uh, who gets breast cancer and develops lymphedema, their insurance has to cover lymphedema therapy and the lymphedema sleeve. As soon as that woman ages onto Medicare, no more coverage. And also, it doesn't cover men who might get breast cancer. It doesn't cover other cancers that lymphedema might result for. So I can remember the first time I came to the point of, oh, hey, I need to get my compression covered. Oh, wait a minute, it says that they're not covered. And then I looked and saw it would be covered if I had lymphedema from breast cancer, but it's not covered for lymphedema anything, any other reasons. It's kind of like, why? And that's really not necessarily, that. that's just back to the point of not enough being known about, you know, lymphedema and the many causes and stuff. And it's nothing wrong. There's, of course, a lot of things that, um, you know, women or certain diseases that women are most likely to get did need that extra, you know, support. But it's interesting that Congress passed a bill to mandate coverage for this, but they didn't make Medicare cover it. They only made private insurance cover it. And so now we're even fighting for Medicare to cover this for breast cancer patients. But in addition, we want Medicare to cover it for all lymphedema patients. Um, and so that will include patients that develop lymphedema from lipedema also, um, primary lymphedema, uh, you know, men, women, everyone. Like that is the one thing we've always held onto is we want this bill to pass compression coverage for everyone who has lymphedema. Um, cause, and I know we get a lot of people who say, well, we, you know, several members of Congress will, will not co-sponsor our bill. I won't mention names, but trust me, I could probably name them all very quickly. Uh, <laughs> there are some members of Congress who don't want to co-sponsor our bill because um, they don't they don't sponsor disease-specific legislation. And I just want to, like, first of all, it's not just one disease. It's a, a it, it, you know, it, it, it's a condition that people with various diseases develop. Um, and but also, why would they not I mean, want to do that even if they did, if it was one disease? Did they give an explanation as to why that would be bad? Because then if they do one, they have to do all that come to them. And here's the situation with this. Their co-sponsor record is public. We can go and look back and see every bill they've co-sponsored that was, in fact, disease-specific. But let me tell you also, they don't like when you bring that up to them. <laughs> um, so I, without giving away the name, one of these people who say, I don't want to coast, you know, and now let me just say, they don't, it's not that they don't support the bill. They'll support the bill. The bill comes to the floor. They'll be sure to vote yes on it. They'll be sure to keep, you know, my thoughts and whatever in their minds, which is fine, absolutely fine. But sometimes in order to get through the process, you have to have a certain number of co-sponsors. So in the early days, when we're really trying to get the number of co-sponsors up, it really, like, would have helped to add more people. Um, and we did. We turned several who came with that. We 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 changed, you know, we showed them our information, and we got them on board. Um, but what's interesting is one in particular, he's a lead on a bill for um, addiction, which – it is a disease, no question about it. But when I said, you know, your bill is a disease-specific bill because it's the disease of addiction, 
Oh my gosh. Like <laughs> someone was like newbie mistake. Like, I mean, I did it nicely and stuff, but obviously, um, yeah, I could just tell by the way their staff reacted that they weren't pleased with that, you know, rationale for me. So I haven't used it again, but you know, it is like, when they say we don't co-sponsor a bill that don't have a score, well, we we can go back and see. Like, I just wish they would just vet each bill on its merit. You know, I, I know there's a lot of bills out there asking for stuff for certain diseases because you have to, because our healthcare system, there's gaps in it, you know? And, or there's certain treatments that, you know, someone might need to others. And we also, we often get, you know, asked, like, why, you know, well, if we do this, won't this person want coverage and stuff? It's like, well, then why not cover that too then? You know, why not people who have, you know, like my question is like, so then why not cover it? You know, if if you say you're concerned about covering our bill because someone else might come in after us and ask, why not tell them yes? Why not every patient in the United States that has a medical condition not have access to the available treatment for that condition? Sounds like what government should be doing. It should be, you know, and of course, like, well, because of cost. And it's like, but do you realize how much excess cost is being spent when patients with lymphedema do not have adequate treatment? We develop skin infections called cellulitis. We, if they stop responding to oral antibiotics, patients end up in the hospital on IV antibiotics. The cost of the complications of not being able to manage our lymphedema are far outweigh the cost of just providing lymphedema compression. And there have actually now been studies that show that. There are state mandates. The state of Virginia mandated coverage for lymphedema compression in, I think they mandated it in 20, 2004, and it started in 2006. And so in 2016, they actually had 10 years of data to check and see, you know, what what the result was of having this mandate and actually providing compression. And there was actually a decrease in hospitalization. And there wasn't like, I think we've been looking, there wasn't like a huge increase. There was a decrease in cost. So any money that you put towards the compression, you saved other places. But some people only want to look at the fact that there'll be that, that first, that upfront cost. And I'm like, but we can't think like that. We are. For a, for a nation that has a, health, a for-profit health care system, they make some of the most wasteful money decisions ever. It, it really is. And that's what I'm saying. I come at my advocacy of, look, I understand what your concern is, and I need you to understand what the patient concern is, and let's try to make work out the best solution. So their concern is we don't want to spend too much money. Our concern is we don't, you know, we want to, you know, be able to get the treatment we need. But I'm telling you, the answer is really the same for both. It's not always in every situation, but for most it is. So it's just, you know, getting, there's just so much um, policies, procedures, people to, you know, to break it all down. I mean, sitting here right now, you know, you look at the, I'm just a bill, you know, guy and, you know, okay, you get a bill, you get sponsors and we're sitting here for the second session in a row, the most supported healthcare bill over 400 co-sponsors, and we're still waiting for it to be moved and attached to something to move. Because you also hear people say, we don't, you know, these big packages, we hate these big packages. No one even knows what's in these big packages that get moved. But then you also, they won't move individual legislation like they used to do. I mean, we've been told a single, a small bill like this most likely will not you know, move on its own. It needs to be attached to something. And so, again, it was attached to H.R. 3, which is great, but now, you know, the Senate has to move a version of something that it's either attached to or part of. Um, and, you know, like I said, COVID just has kind of side, you know, sideswiped everyone. Um, we were actually in Washington, D.C. the beginning of March for our lobby days for this bill. And, you know, we were expecting it to go in May for extenders and, you know, then, co- I mean, honestly, that morning, it was a Monday, we had our one day on the Hill, and in the morning, we were meeting offices like we always do, because I've been there several times, meeting with offices, meeting with the staff, hey, you know, some staff is 
meeting for the first time, some staff at offices we've worked with for years, and they know us, like, hey, welcome back. Nice to see you again. Let me give you an update on our bill. Let me, you know, this is what we're hoping happens this year. It got passed in December, blah, blah, blah. And then they would give us some information back, like if they know a bill that's coming down the pipeline that we might be a part of and everything. After lunch, the meetings went like, hey, hi, no offense, but we can't shake your hands because there's now new COVID or coronavirus protocol that we're not allowed to shake hands. And it's like, okay, you know, and like, or sorry, I'm late for my meeting. We were just in a coronavirus meeting. And it was like, so it was real interesting. I flew home, found out there were, uh, I forget what the conference was happening in D.C. at that time. But I know the person who sat next to me on the flight had been, because she had been on the same flight there. And so when she saw me on the flight, she sat next to me. We were chatting on the way home. And she had been to one of the conferences that there were some cases at. So you, so then you start to wonder, like, oh, my gosh, what have I, you know. And then, of course, it just all, uh, you know, I, I don't even know what to say about it all now. I mean, I'm sure I've said a lot. But um, we're hoping things get passed by the end of this year. We're still working on it. But I don't think anyone really can know exactly what's going to happen now and the end of now on November 3rd, and then what happens after November 3rd is really the unknown. Well, for my last question, for someone who is looking for information, you know, where to start if they're overwhelmed with questions, um, information that they're trying to get, especially if they're dealing, you know, with weight issues, uh, what advice would you give them of, to, of where to start? So I think the best place to start if you are – if you are wanting to make changes in regards to your weight or learn more about how to um, find providers or advocacy around weight or obesity or weight bias, um, would to be visit obesityaction.org. Uh, I am on their board of directors also, and it is a patient-based obesity organization that advocates for, I mean, they have their whole mission statement, but they advocate for patients with obesity. They Part of it is information about treatment, as I mentioned, research-based treatments, not, um, you know, quick weight loss pills that you get at GNC, uh, but actually, you know, either surgical or pharmaceuticals. There's more pharmaceutical um, or, uh, like, in-person treatments, um, I'm trying to think of what all the, the phrasing is, but surgical, non-surgical treatments, pharmaceuticals, um, you know, and, and I think a lot of people, if they even hear a bear, like I had a friend who was told by her primary doctor, um, not not going to send you to get lymphedema treatment until you lose 50 pounds and kept wanting her to have weight loss surgery and bariatric surgery. And she was just kind of against it. So finally, just to like shut him up, she went to the bariatric doctor and the bariatric doctor knew what lymphedema was and got her treatment for lymphedema. Not even like, oh, you're not interested in surgery? Okay, well, I can help you with this. Obesity doctors, there's obesity medicine. Not every bariatric doctor, not every obesity medicine doctor is a surgeon. There is obesity treatment outside of surgery. And that is what I think I want most people to understand. Don't avoid going to a doctor to get help with your weight just because you think they're just going to prescribe or try to get you to have one type of thing. If they do, that's not right. There, There's several options. And like I said, there's many doctors who know how to treat patients with obesity who will actually treat you for yourself, you know. And so obesityaction.org would be my first for anyone with, you know, concerns about their weight or how to get the best care for the weight or finding a provider who will be, you know, open and non-biased about having that discussion um, for anything lymphedema related um, so for anything about our bill and we do have resources about lymphedema uh, that would be lymphedematreatmentact.org and we have a quick easy way that you can contact your legislators about getting this bill passed this year also on the left hand side of what I can do um, we also have information about what lymphedema is and um, links to other organizations such as the National Lymphedema Network and the America, um, my gosh, I'm trying to figure out, remember the name of it. But there's, there's links to um, 
uh oh, now I'm trying to think. Lana, the lymphatic association of North America is where you can find some lymphedema certified physical or occupational therapists who know exactly how to do the treatments that we need done. Um, but again, you can find all that on the resource tab of the lymphedema treatment act.org. And then for anything lipedema, the best is fat disorders, uh, resource society. So FDRS, or I think it's just fat disorders.org. They have most information about, there's other fat disorders besides just lipedema. There's also Durkham's and a couple others. So that has the most information and research up to date. And they also have, um, some provider information also. And for, and if you want to support research for lipedema, it's the Lipedema Foundation. They have information and they're the ones who are really spearheading getting research done. And of course, the process for research takes many years. But I just have to say the reason I give my time to the organizations that I'm involved in is because I'm seeing progress be made. The progress is slow, but I see the progress being made. Um, and that's certainly why you know, my time is valuable to me, especially when you have health conditions and managing your health and your time. And, you know, as I did say, I have a part-time work also, but I am not the type to be in an organization just to be in an organization. I want to make sure there are things being done. And these organizations are ones that I fully support. Um, I wish I could support all four that I mentioned with my time, and I'm not able to. So, but the two that I do support with my time and my energy and um, the people involved in them are really concerned and caring about the patient experience, which is what my care and concern is, too. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking with us today. It was very informative and enlightening. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on.